Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to our latest Book Dreams bonus episode. I'm Julie Sternberg, here as always with Evio Hallam. And our theme for this episode is Book Connections times when one book leads us to thoughts of another or inspires us to read another and sometimes another and another and another. This is one of my very favorite aspects of reading, you know, escaping into the world of one book, then tying it together with the world of another and comparing them and contrasting them all while sitting in an armchair under a blanket, forgetting that these worlds have been conjured just by words on a page. So what book connections are on your mind, Eve? Well, I want to talk about two pairs of books today, all by different authors, and all of which focus on the hidden lives of ordinary women. Ooh, fascinating. Tell us more. So the first pair of books is Gigi by Colette and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The Intimate Diary of a Professional Lady by Anita Luce. They're both novellas. They were both turned into movie musicals, and they're both about young women who are pursuing careers as courtesans. And they're both terrific. Mm. So longtime listeners of the podcast will remember that we talked about Gigi way back in episode 119. It's about a teenage girl in Paris who's being groomed as a courtesan by her mother and grandmother. And we had a really interesting conversation with our good friend Mark Aceto about it, specifically about how the novella really differed from the movie in its unapologetic depiction of pragmatic women who are choosing the best of a limited range of life paths for themselves. They treat the pursuit of a long-term sexual arrangement with a wealthy man like a family business, and this is a business that will allow all of them to live with dignity and in comfort. And unlike the movie, the novella centers on the women, on their needs and their ideas and actions. The man is almost beside the point. I love that you're reading the books that inspired these older movies. I've been thinking I'd like to read the novel that Poor Things, you know, the new Emma Stone movie is based on. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's such a good idea. I saw the movie and now oh. I, you're absolutely right. Absolutely need to see the read the book. Yes. But Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? I didn't even know that that started as a novella. How did you learn about it? Obviously, the same way I learn about pretty much everything that is theater related mm. from Mark Aceto. Yeah. So Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Lorelai Lee, the heroine of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, is just as pragmatic as Gigi in her pursuit of a wealthy sponsor. But Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, it's slyer and funnier. And it was written in 1925, which is 19 years before Colette wrote Gigi. Wow. For reference, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was published the same year as The Great Gatsby. And they actually cover some of the same ground, you know, jazz era hedonists. For people who haven't read the story or seen the movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is a satirical novella about a seemingly naive young flapper who seems hardly able to read a book and uses outrageously awful grammar, yet goes from one kept relationship to another, outsmarting every man she encounters. It is an absolutely delicious read and only 100 pages. You'll finish it in one sitting. And also, the author has a fascinating backstory. Do you know anything about Anita Luz? No, I'm listening to you. I know nothing about any of this. This is also I mean, neither did I. Right. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but after I read the book, of course, I went and I researched her a little bit. And it turns out she was a highly successful screenwriter and playwright. In fact, in 1912, she became the first female Hollywood screenwriter when she was hired by D.W. Griffith. And she went on to write more than 100 movies, including the screenplay for Gigi. 
So this is all connected. She hung out with an eclectic crowd of movie stars and writers and kept women, although she herself was married. And she was as well known in her day as many of the actors she wrote for. Whoa. I want to find a biography about her and read it. And I also have got to read the novella. Oh, well, you will not regret it. I mean, Fitzgerald, James Joyce, H.G. Wells, William Faulkner, they all loved it. And Edith Wharton called it, and I'm quoting, the great American novel because of the way it depicts the avarice and self-indulgence of the 1920s. I mean, is there any greater accolade imaginable than Edith Wharton calling your book the great American novel? Wow. No, No. definitively no. (laughs) Okay. So what about your other pair of books? Okay. So now it's time for a Linda Blair exorcist style headspin, as in we are now turning to Martha Ballard, a real life actual midwife who lived in 18th century Maine. So one of my favorite books of all time is A Midwife's Tale, The Life of Martha Ballard, based on her diary from 1785 to 1812, which is by historian Laura Thatcher Ulrich. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1990. I don't remember how I found out about it or when I even read it, but this is a book that has resonated within me for decades. As its title suggests, Martha Ballard was a midwife in Maine, and she kept a diary for almost 30 years in which she recorded her professional and domestic activities. And then after spending about 150 years in various ancestors' attics, the diary ended up in the Maine State Library, and nobody thought it had any scholarly value. Except Laura Thatcher Ulrich found it and realized its potential. So here was a first-person daily record of a woman's life, and also because of her particular profession of her community. Martha Ballard was out in the world and in the homes of her neighbors in a way that was rare for a woman of her time. There are births. She delivered more than 800 babies in the course of her career. And there are deaths and court cases and church going and local politics and holidays. And, you know, it's life for a 30 year period. I do have to say the diary itself, if you just read the diary, it's very dry. Most of her entries are just the date, the weather and what Martha did that day. You know, attended so-and-so's birth, came home, canned tomatoes, that kind of thing. But Laura Ulrich does this amazing thing. She provides historical context and detail that bring to life the spare information that Martha has left us. You know, it's one thing to hear from Martha, it snowed, she delivered a baby of a first-time mother. It's another thing entirely to know that for Martha, getting from her house to the laboring woman's home meant trudging by foot over a frozen river weighed down by a heavy basket of medical supplies, and that when she got back to her own house after 36 hours at the mother's bedside, she still had to prepare dinner for her own family. In all honesty, I have to warn you that this book may not be for everyone. It's actually hard for me to admit that because I love it so much. (laughs) Full disclosure, many years ago, I chose it for my book club and Uh, it's possible that not a single person finished it because they thought it was too dry. (laughs) And I'm talking about the Laura Ulrich version, which, you know, okay, maybe even with Laura Ulrich, it's still kind of dry. But if you can accept that, the rewards are vast. I mean, I think knowing that it's dry going in makes a huge difference. Expectations are everything. I'm also really feeling for you because when your friends don't love your very favorite book, you know, it's one thing when they, they don't. They can't be your friends anymore. <laughs> oh, dear. That's really hard. 
That's really I hard. cut them all out. No, <laughs> cut I'm just them all out. no, I mean, you know, when you disagree over a book that you, you like or even love, but it's not your real favorite, it doesn't matter. That's just interesting, right? It's an interesting conversation. But when mm-hmm. it's your real favorite, it hits hard. Anyway, yeah. I yeah. also want to say that a factual recounting of the experience of a midwife in the late 1700s, early 1800s. There is no more Eve book. Like that book is sitting <laughs> on a shelf calling Eve. You know me. Eve. You understand. <laughs> Read me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you can imagine that when I saw that an accomplished author of historical fiction had just come out with a book based on Martha Ballard's life, it took me, oh, you know, all of 30 seconds to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So that book is called The Frozen River, and it's by Ariel Lawhon, I think is, well, Her name is spelled L-A-W-H-O-N. I am guessing the pronunciation. So the novel condenses and fictionalizes some of the events in Martha's diary. In the novel, the wife of a local preacher accuses the local judge and another man of breaking into her home while her husband was away and raping her. And shortly afterwards, the other man is discovered dead under a block of ice in a partly frozen river. And Martha is called in to examine his body and determine a cause of death, which she says is murder. Martha also examined the preacher's wife several days after she was raped and is prepared to testify about her injuries in court. And over the course of one long winter, we follow Martha through multiple births, domestic life, political machinations, court hearings. We get to know her husband and adult children who are in various stages of courtship and many of her neighbors. It's a rich portrait of a time and place and its people. You know, she injects blood into this diary. And yet, I wasn't moved by it the same way I was moved by a midwife's tale. There's something about the scope of Martha's diary that affected me deeply. She started it when she was 50, and she still had a household full of children and nieces and female cousins. It was common practice at the time for young women to spend time helping out in the homes of their relatives before they got married. So Martha had this full, bustling household with lots of you know, noise and color, the way houses are like that, and a full profession and a very rich life. And by the end of the diary, she's in her late 70s, and it's just her and her husband at home. And there's a sadness and maybe even a bitterness to her at the end of her life, specifically because she's a woman. Once all the young women got married and moved into households of their own, Martha was solely responsible for all the domestic labor in her home. She delivered babies until two months before she died, and she never stopped doing all the cooking and cleaning and sewing and gardening. When her husband came in from working during the day, he put his feet up and relaxed, and Martha never did. That hardship is missing from the novel. In fact, in the novel, her husband is exceedingly loving and supportive of her empowerment. And I guess this is weird to say, but I found that disappointing. You know, I have read neither book, but I am finding it like, I'm finding it very disappointing too. Like, I feel that Martha has been betrayed. Well, I don't want to overstate it. It's not like you read the book and you think, oh, Martha's life is a cakewalk. You know, her life is challenging. I was just missing big parts of her. And, you know, if I had never read the diary, maybe I would have adored the book. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to know. It's so interesting to me that you were more moved by the dry nonfiction recounting of her life than the novel. And I love too that she felt compelled in the course of this very full and difficult life to keep that diary. Mm. It sort of both say something about the power of writing. I think you don't know 
what the effect is going to be for yourself as someone writing details down or for the reader when you start creating a written account. That's so true. Or how long it might take for your words to have an impact. Mm, Good point. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about your book connections. Okay. Let me just start by saying that I have been in a real reading slump for an alarmingly long time now. I think it's because I'm in the final throes of writing a full draft of a novel and I don't have a lot of bandwidth left to sink into other stories. I keep opening book after book. I mean, fabulous books by all other accounts and just being like, nope, nope, nope. Until I found, or I should say refound, a series that worked perfectly for me in this moment of my brain life. And of course, a series is the most straightforward, handed to you on a platter kind of book connection that there is. Okay, you know I love series. So what is it and how did you refind it? So you might recall that back in October, Time Magazine released a list of the 100 best mystery and thriller books of all time. That's what it was called. The books were chosen by a panel of stellar authors in the genre. I mean, we're talking Megan Abbott, S.A. Cosby, Tana French, Gillian Flynn, to die for. We'll include a link to the list in the show notes in case you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. One of the books on the list is Faceless Killers by Henning Mankell. Faceless Killers is the first in his series of books featuring Detective Kurt Wallander. They're set in the early 1990s in Sweden. I read the Wallander books many, many years ago, and I actually kept them all. I read a lot of mysteries and thrillers, as you know, and I usually donate them back out into the world to find other readers because there's a limit to my shelf space and I have already far exceeded it. But for whatever reason, I chose to keep these books at the time. So I figure I must have really liked them, but I don't really remember them. Anyway, I saw Faceless Killers on the list. I thought, I wonder whether I would still like it. I reread it. I thought, huh. I like the atmosphere. I like the focus on Wallander's thoughts. I like how he's not a seasoned detective yet, so he's doing a fair bit of you know bumbling around. I feel like I could be the detective too, as I read, but I'm not sure, I thought, that this book stands the test of time. He's awfully misogynistic. Did I miss that before? Did it not bother me as much? Like, would I really have read and kept 12 or 13 books about a misogynist? So I read the second book, to see whether he evolved or whether I had over time. And then I read the third and then I just, I read them all. He does evolve. He's imperfect throughout, but his attitudes do progress. I love that the books are as much about aging and the changes in the world around him as they are about the particular crimes that he's trying to address and how he goes about solving them. And it was helpful to me as I was writing that he's so much in his head that's where I like the focus to be in my writing too. And I love that your version of a reading slump is to read 13 books. <laughs> I've been in to such read, a slump. To reread them. I've already read them. It's like. <laughs> yeah, d- d- just forget it. No okay, credibility. Okay, fine, fine. Um, I do want to say I have read so many more good thrillers than I used to because of you. And I am not sure I've ever thanked you for that. So thank you, Julie. Oh, you're very, you're very welcome. I'm so happy to be of service. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Any other book connection you've been thinking about lately? Yes. One more. 
At some point this past year, I prioritized reading books connected to S.A. Cosby's By the Book column in the New York Times Book Review. I read books he specifically recommended and books by authors he praised. I talked about this in episode 137. Looking back on my reading experiences in 2023, that was a real highlight. I loved each and every one of the books I read, Cosby's All the Sinners Bleed, Dennis Lehane's Small Mercies, Jasmine Ward's Men We Reap, Chester Himes's The Real Cool Killers, and I really enjoyed thinking about their similarities and differences and strengths and weaknesses. Most by the book columns aren't as full of promising suggestions, but I think I'm going to do a deep dive into the archive to try to find more. It's like being handed a reading map by the most expert of guides. And then you're going to tell me what you read and what you liked, and then I'll just read those. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to say that's it for this Book Dreams bonus episode. We always love hearing from you. Let us know what you're reading and loving. You can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find me at epohallam.com and Julie at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.